Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and it is Christogenia on Talk Show, Friday, August 16th, 2011. I just had a thought for today just before, um, j- just before the program started. If we all live in the same global village, then why can't white people build fences? Mexicans can build fences, so they have La Raza and Atlan. Negroes can build fences, so they have the NAACP and the EEOC and, and BET. Jews can build fences, so they have the ADL and APAC and a thousand other organizations. But white people can't build fences, and therefore all of the beasts of the field devour our gardens and our children. That is not even democracy. Therefore, whites have to proactively defend their right to build fences, period. And that's the way that we should approach that problem, or at least one way. Maybe some of our brethren will wake up. I think of the um, the Nuremberg trials or the fate of Sylvia Stoltz or or see what they did to Germa Rudolph and Udo Walendi and Robert Forreston and, and a thousand other unjust railroadings, Randy Weaver, Edgar Steele possibly, and in and and, and this day, and I think of the trials of Christ taken by force in the middle of the night by a mob of so-called officials. The Jewish tyranny often operates in much the same way today which is the same way as the Bolsheviks also operated in Soviet Russia. Wherever you find Jews, and wherever you find Jews in offices of authority, you find tyranny and oppression conducted in the name of justice. And it's a pattern which is readily apparent throughout all history. This is the 22nd week of our presentation and discussion of the Gospel of Matthew. It will require at least one more week after tonight to bring it to completion. Last week we left off of Matthew chapter 27, verses 20 through 23, and we shall commence by repeating those tonight. And Pilate, seeing that nothing helps, but rather a tumult arises, taking water, washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this man, you see to it. And responding, all the people said, His blood is upon us and upon our children. Then he released Barabbas for them, but having scourged Joshua, he handed him over in order that he would be crucified. Discussing these circumstances at the end of last week's program, we focused on the situation that Pilate was in and how it was difficult for him to avoid handing Joshua Christ over to their desires. To me, this situation of Pilate's encapsulates something which has been a dilemma for our race since the beginning. The failure of man to properly confront evil. In exchange, preferring love of the world and one's own safety and comfort. Indeed, Pilate may have resisted the bloodthirsty desires of the Jews. But then he would have had to deal with their with their riotous behavior and all of the political fallout which would certainly have followed. Christ himself certainly understood Pilate's situation and therefore said that he that delivered me unto you has the greater sin.
As we read in John 19.11, in the discourse between Christ and Pilate, which Matthew did not record. Let us consider these verses from Psalm 26 in consideration of Pontius Pilate. Verse 5, I have hated the congregation of evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. Pilate washed his hands of the insistence of the Jews. I will wash my hands in innocency, so will I compass thine altar, O Yahweh. But that is only half of what is going on in these few verses, where we also see the Jews exclaim that his blood is upon us and upon our children. Pilate washed his hands of the blood of Christ, denying any responsibility for it. That's an act that's also found in Scripture in Deuteronomy 21.6 and Psalm 73.13, as well as Psalm 26 and elsewhere, 26.6. So we see the same idea in Hebrew and in Roman culture. Pilate washed his hands, and so the Jews in turn accepted full responsibility. It may be fitting at this point to read the 22nd Psalm since it is related to both these things and to the events which, the, which are to follow shortly afterwards. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabits the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee, they trusted, and you did deliver them. They cried unto thee and were delivered, they trusted in thee and were not confounded. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn, they shoot out the lip, they shake the head saying, he trusted on Yahweh that he would deliver him, let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. Of course, this mirrors the mockery of the Jews who mocked Christ on the cross. But thou art he that took me out from the womb, from the womb. Thou did make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me. For trouble is near, but there is none to help. Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me around. We'll contrast the bulls to the dogs a little later on. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue cleaves to my jaws. A pot's heard, by the way, is a ceramic fragment from a broken pot. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones. They look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my soul, I'm sorry, upon my vesture. But be not thou far from me, O Yahweh, my strength. Haste 
thee to help me deliver my soul from the sword, my darling, from the power of the dog. We see that David, the speaker here, but this is definitely a messianic prophecy concerning Christ also. It has both meanings. It is encompassed by both bulls and dogs. The power of the dog. The Canaanite woman was a dog. The power of the dog represents the Jews who were responsible for his death. These, and not the Roman soldiers, were the dogs that encompassed him. These and not the Roman soldiers who were merely following orders and doing what soldiers do. But the Jews themselves accepted responsibility for the death of Christ when they exclaimed, His blood is upon us and upon our children. They are responsible for the execution of Christ, and they are the dogs where it describes the power of the dog. Verse 21. Save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will praise thee. Ye that fear Yahweh, praise him. All ye seed of Jacob, glorify him. And fear him, all ye seed of Israel. If that wasn't important, it wouldn't be in a messianic prophecy, right? For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, neither has he hid his face from him. But when he cried unto him, he heard, My praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. I will pay my vows before them that fear him. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise Yahweh that seek him. Your heart shall live forever. The meek shall inherit the earth. Matthew 5, 5. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto Yahweh. All the kindreds, clans, or families of the nations the Genesis 10 nations, shall worship before thee. For the kingdom is Yahweh's, and he is the governor among the nations. Well, Yahweh is only the God of Israel. And he said that countless times in Scripture. Israel is the only family he has known in all the earth. So these kindreds, clans, or families must be the Israelite families of the Adamic Oikumene, the Genesis 10 nations. All they that be sat upon the earth shall eat and worship. All they that go down to the dust shall bow before him. And none can keep alive his own soul. A seed, a race, shall serve him. It shall be accounted to Yahweh for a generation. A generation is a seed, not a church. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born. He has done this. In reference to Psalm 22, and especially verses, verses 26 through 28, Deuteronomy 32.8 and Acts 17, verses 26 to 27, should in turn be visited, where it is made evident that the nations of Psalm 22, verses 26 through 28, are only those Adamic Genesis 10 nations. Deuteronomy 32.8, when the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, that sentence defines nations as the sons of Adam. No other race can be defined as a nation in the Old Testament. 
not properly. Not a nation which the gospel was to be brought to. He set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. Acts 17, 26 and 27. And he made from one, meaning from Adam, every nation of men, every nation of Adam. In Romans 5, 5, Paul, and these are Paul's words, I'm sorry, in Romans chapter 5, Paul defines and equates the word man with the word Adam. Romans chapters 5 and chapter 8. And he made from one every nation of men to dwell upon the face, all the face of the earth, appointing the times ordained and the boundaries of their settlements. This is in direct relation to Deuteronomy 32.8, when he separated the sons of Adam. He set the bounds of the people. And all this happened in Genesis chapter 11, where we find only the descendants of Noah, the surviving sons of Adam. Nobody else can be counted in any of this biblical script, in any of the scripture. If you can't find Chinamen and Kenyans, Hutus, Tutsis, Mandingos, Koreans, Eskimos, if you can't find them in Genesis chapter 10, and you can't, then you won't find them in Deuteronomy 32a. You won't find them in Acts 17, 26, and 27. You won't find them in the last paragraph of Matthew that tells us to bring the gospel to all of the nations, and I'll discuss that next week. All of that is only in the context of Adamic man, white man, period. And he made from one every nation of men to dwell upon all the face of the earth, appointing the times ordained and the boundaries of their settlements to seek Yahweh, to seek God. If surely then they would seek after him, they would find him, and indeed he being not far from each one of us. That only relates to the Adamic man which has the spirit of Yahweh. If there were not truths in Christianity, what would Christ have mattered to the Jews after his death? The efficacy of the prophecies of the Bible prove that it is true over and over again. The Jews persecuted Christians in an attempt to conceal their crime, which can only properly be termed deicide. One place where this is evident is in Acts chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, where it says, and bringing them, meaning Peter and John, and bringing them, they stood them among the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, Did we instruct you with instructions not to teach by this name? And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you desire the blood of this man to be brought upon us. In other words, in blood, kinsman redemption. Attempting to suppress his teaching and his name, the Jews attempted to hide their own guilt. Matthew twenty-seven twenty-seven, And the soldiers of the governor, taking Yahshua into the praetorium, the whole cohort gathered upon him, and clothing him, they wrapped around him a scarlet cloak. That was the symbol of a king, of course. And braiding a crown out of thorns, 
they set it upon his head, and a reed in his right hand. And falling to their knees before him, they had mocked him, saying, Hail, king of the Judeans. And spitting at him, they took the reed and beat it on his head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the cloak and clothed him in his garments and led him off for which to be crucified. Isaiah chapter 50 verse 6 reads, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Verse 32. And going, they found a man, a Kerenian with the name Simon. Many fools want to make Simon into some sort of alien or brown squat monster, simply because he was from Cyrene, or Kyrene properly, which was in Africa. First, Simon was a name found among the Greeks, but it was mostly and originally a popular Hebrew name. It's the same as the name Simeon. And we see Peter, Simon Peter, calls himself Simeon in, in one of his epistles. That's the Hebrew form of Simon. Cyrene was a famous Greek settlement on that part of the African coast, which was adjacent to Egypt. The settlement is described by Greek historians as far back as Herodotus, and it probably dates to the 7th or even the 8th century BC, prior to the start of the Persian period. Simon, Simon from Cyrene, or Cyrene, was with all certainty a Judean Hebrew from Cyrene, who was fulfilling his obligation to appear in Jerusalem for the Passover. To continue verse 32. Him they had conscripted in order that he would carry his cross, meaning the cross of Christ. And having come to a place called Golgotha, which is called place of the skull, that's what Golgotha is said to mean in Hebrew, they gave to him wine mixed with bitters to drink, and having tasted it, he did not wish to drink it. Psalm 69:21. They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. There are a lot of extant fables concerning this Golgotha. One recent character claims that the Ark of the Covenant is buried there, and he has his followers. Even though there was absolutely no substance or merit to his claim, and not one shred of solid evidence is presented as proof, and he is found to contradict himself often. His name is not worth mentioning. Another probable fable, and I have to repeat it, is found in the pseudepigraphal first book of Adam and Eve. The earliest known versions of this work are esteemed to be in Arabic and made their way into Ethiopic, where, where it was preserved along with the Enoch literature and other works. Parts of the first book of Adam and Eve, according to Rutherford H. Platt, are found in the Talmud and in the Quran. I do not believe that this literature, I personally do not believe that this literature is canonical, at least in a form in which we have it now. But it is quite interesting in many respects. 
In the passage quoted below, note the use of the phrases kingdom of heaven and water of life. Phrases which appear in the New Testament, but they are not found in the Old Testament. The ideas are found in the Old Testament, but not the phrases themselves. In my opinion, that betrays the Christian-era authorship for this book. Yet, at the least, the book does reveal the attitudes and beliefs of at least some very early Christians. So this is from the Forgotten Books of Eden by Rutherford H. Platt, Jr., published in 1926. The first book of Adam and Eve, also called The Conflict of Adam and Eve with Satan, chapter 42. Verse 1, then came the word of God to Adam, and he said unto him, O Adam, as to what you say, bring me into a land where there is rest. It is not another land than this, but it is the kingdom of heaven where alone there is rest. But you cannot make your entrance into it at the present, but only after your judgment is passed and fulfilled. Then I will make you go up into the kingdom of heaven. And there in thy righteous seed, or offspring, and I will give thee and them the rest that you ask for at present. And if you say, give me the water of life that I may drink and live, it cannot be this day, but on the day that I shall descend into hell and break the gates of brass and bruise in pieces the kingdoms of iron. Then will I in mercy save thy soul and the souls of the righteous to give them rest in my garden. And that shall be when the end of the world is come. And again, as regards the water of life that you seek, it will not be granted you to stay. But on a day that I shall shed my blood upon thy head in the land of Golgotha. And so from that grew the tradition that Adam was buried under Golgotha, where Christ was crucified a tradition that I believe is a fable, and I certainly can't accept it. For my blood shall be the water of life unto thee at that time, and not to thee alone, but unto all those of thy seed who shall believe in me, that it may be unto them for rest forever. Now, of course, this may be only referring to Golgotha allegorically. Yahweh said again unto Adam, O Adam, when you were in the garden, these trials did not come unto you. But since you did transgress my commandment, all these sufferings have come upon you. Now also does thy flesh require food and drink. Drink then of that water that flows by thee on the face of the earth. Then God withdrew his word from Adam. And Adam and Eve worshipped Yahweh and returned from the river of water to the cave. They supposedly lived in a cave at this time. It was noonday. And when they drew near to the cave, they saw a large fire by it. And that's from the first book of Adam and Eve. But I don't accept it as canonical. But we see that there is a tradition that Adam is buried under Golgotha. And another book which mentions that tradition in relation to Adam and to Christ is called The Cave of Treasures. And that, too, is a quite interesting work. But it will not be cited for this presentation. Since while many people, even in Christian identity, cling to parts of the cave of treasures as, a, as factual, 
the book is actually a product of, of a 6th century A.D. Jacobite writer, and it is full of heresies and fantastic novelties, which I believe have no scriptural basis whatsoever. Matthew 27, verse 35. Then crucifying him, meaning Christ, of course, they parted his garments, casting lots. It's at this point in Luke that we see Christ say, or, or that we see that it is said that Christ said, have mercy on them, Father, for they know not what they do. But those words don't belong in Luke. They were a later interpolation, and they don't exist here in Matthew or in any other gospel. Then crucifying him, they parted his garments, casting lots. And being seated, they watched him there. And they set his charge above his head, being written, This is Joshua, the king of the Judeans. The King James Version adds to verse 35 the following, after they parted his garments, casting lots. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, they parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. These words, referring to Psalm 22.18, began to appear in Greek manuscripts of Matthew in the 9th century A.D., and not before that. It is evident that they may have been copied from Eusebius or from certain Vulgate or Syriac manuscripts where the words also appear, yet they are perhaps originally a commentary note which made its way into the text and not actually a part of the text. They don't belong in the King James. Verse 35 should only say, then crucifying him, they parted his garments, casting lots. The sign placed over his head, as Luke and John both attest, was actually written in Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. The other two Gospels only, att only attest to the sign itself. Verse 38. Then they crucify him with him two robbers, one on the right hand and one on the left. Isaiah 53.12. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. I'm sorry, Matthew 27, verse 39. And those going by blasphemed him, shaking their heads and saying, He destroying the temple and building it in three days, save yourself. If you are a son of God, then you must come down from the cross. Likewise also the high priests, mocking along with the scribes and the elders, said, He has saved others. Is he not able to save himself? Is he king of Israel? Let him descend now from the cross, and we shall believe him. He trusted in God. He must deliver him now if he wishes, for he said that I am the Son of God. Psalm 22, verses 7 and 8. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted on Yahweh that he would deliver him. 
let him deliver him, singing he delighted in him. That psalm is applicable to David, of course, but the entire psalm is a messianic prophecy. The Bible is usually the best commentary and the best proof of itself. For that reason, concerning many things, I would rather usually save my own comments for necessary cultural and historic insights, which may lend some help to understanding the passages and, and the events of the Bible. But the Bible, whenever you can employ it, is a better commentary on itself. But what's the Bible? My Bible's a little wider than the Bibles of others. Not all apocryphal books are alike. And some of them surely should have been included in Scripture. The following passage is from the apocryphal Wisdom of Solomon. I had quoted this work earlier in this presentation of Matthew, discussing chapter 16. I believe that I said there that it should have been included in the Bible, but it probably wasn't because it taught that fornication was race-mixing and that it was evil, and it's pretty explicit about it. Here is chapter 2 from the Wisdom of Solomon from Brenton Septuagint. This book is found in the King James Apocrypha also. And I quote, and, and follow this because this, this, to me, this chapter mirrors the life of Christ perfectly. For the ungodly said, reasoning with themselves, but not rightly, our life is short and tedious, and in the death of man there is no remedy. Neither was there any man known to have returned from the grave, for we are born at all adventure. And we shall be hereafter as though we had never been, for the breath in our nostrils is as smoke and a little spark in the moving of our heart, which being extinguished, our body shall be turned into ashes, and our spirit shall vanish as the soft air, and our name shall be forgotten in time. And no man shall have our works in remembrance, and our life shall pass away as the trace of the cloud, and shall be dispersed as a mist, as a mist that is driven away with the beams of the sun and overcome with the heat thereof. For our time is a very shadow that passes away, and after our end there is no returning, for it is fast sealed that no man cometh again. Remember that these words are being attributed to the thoughts of the ungodly. Verse 6. Come on, therefore, let us enjoy the good things that are present, and let us speedily use the creatures like as in youth. Let us fill ourselves with costly wine and ointments, and let no flower of the spring pass by us. In other words, sleep with everybody you can get your hands on. Let us, And that's what the wicked do. Let us crown ourselves with rosebuds before they be withered. Let none of us go without his part of our voluptuousness. Let us leave tokens of our joyfulness in every place, for this is our portion and our lot is this. These words are still the words of the wicked. Let us oppress the poor righteous man. Let us not spare the widow, nor reverence the ancient gray hairs of the aged. Let our strength be the law of justice. For that which is feeble is found to be worth nothing. Survival of the fittest. 
only the strong survive, might is right, all of those are ideas of wicked men. Therefore, let us die and wait for the right. Let us lie and wait for the righteous, because he is not for our turn, and he is clean contrary to our doings. He upbraids us with our offending the law, and objects to our infamy the transgressings of our education. He professes to have the knowledge of God and calls himself the child of Yahweh or son of Yahweh. He was made to reprove our thoughts. He is grievous unto us even to behold, for his life is not like other men's, his ways are of another fashion. We are esteemed of him as counterfeits. This is still the wicked speaking, speaking of the righteous. He abstains from our ways as from filthiness. He pronounces the end of the just to be blessed and makes his boast that God is his father. Let us see if his words be true and let us prove what shall happen in the end of him. In verse 1, we saw the unrighteous man state that neither was there any man known to have returned from the grave. For if the just man be the son of God, he will help him and deliver him from the hand of his enemies. Let us examine him with despitefulness and torture, that we may know his meekness and prove his patience. Let us condemn him with a shameful death, for by his own saying he shall be respected. The attitude of the wickedness towards the righteous. The attitude of the Jews towards Christ. Such things they did imagine and were deceived for their own wickedness has blinded them. As for the mysteries of God, they knew them not. Neither hoped they for the wages of righteousness, nor discerned a reward for blameless souls. For God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. Nevertheless, through envy of the devil came death into the world, Genesis chapter 3, and they that do hold of his side do find it. They find death. This last verse was poorly translated in Brenton's Greek, where he merely followed the King James Version, and it should have said this. Through envy of the devil came death into the world, and those who are, of, who are of his portion or side make trial. These words found in the wisdom of Solomon are a perfect reflection of the life and trials of Christ and the reason for and the result of his persecution by his enemies because they reflect the natural behavior of the wicked, ungodly men among us. Verse 44, Matthew 27. And with that same thing, even the robbers who were crucified with him reproached him. Luke provides for us the following discourse between Christ and the robbers. From Luke chapter 23, verses 39 to 43. Then one of the criminals hanging blasphemed him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. 
But the other, replying and censuring him, said, Do you not even fear God, seeing that you are in the same judgment? And we justly indeed, for we receive worthily for what we have done. But he has done nothing improper. And then he said, Yahshua, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, meaning Yahshua said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. The best commentary on this is also that verse found in chapter 2 of the Wisdom of Solomon, as I would translate it. Through envy of the devil, death came into the world, and those who are of his side make trial. As the revelation tells us of the end, now the salvation of the power and the kingdom of our God has come, and the authority of his anointed, because the accuser of our brethren has been cast down. That's how the enemies of God are portrayed. That's how the children of Cain are portrayed. That's how the fallen angels, the serpents, are portrayed. The accuser of our brethren, they consistently make trial. They consistently doubt and persecute all that is righteous. That's the point behind the Wisdom of Solomon, Chapter 2. That's the point behind the discourse between the two robbers on the cross. Many people want to move that word today in Greek, and in and, 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 and Luke 23:43, that they wanted to say, um, truly today I say to you that you shall be with me in paradise. Those people are fools. They should learn how to read Greek before they pervert the gospel. It says, truly I say to you, comma, today you shall be with me in paradise. Matthew 27, verse 45. Then from the sixth hour, there came darkness upon all the land until the ninth hour. Now, the sixth hour in the Greek day would be approximately 12 noon, the first hour of the day starting when the sun rose, right? Which could change a little throughout the year, but it's approximately 6 a.m., right? The ninth hour, therefore, would be 3 p.m. And about the ninth hour, Yahshua cried out with a great voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which is, My God, my God, for what reason have you abandoned me? Or, as the King James has it, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But some of those who stood there hearing it said that he calls Elijah. Eli, or Eloi is the way it's actually spelt in Greek, Now I am going to make a risky proposition. It is perfectly true, as Matthew tells us, that the words of Christ here mean, my God, my God, for what reason have you abandoned me? And it is also evident that Yahshua uttered these words in fulfillment of the Messianic prophecy concerning himself in the 22nd Psalm, where we see the words again. However, verse 47 shows that there was some confusion over the meaning of his words as they were uttered, where it says, some of those 
who stood there hearing it, said that he calls Elijah. And there is one other possible interpretation of these words. And even if this other interpretation is not how the apostles understood the words of Christ here, and it's clear they did not, the apostles understood that Christ said, My God, my God, for what reason have you abandoned me? It is nevertheless plausible that Yahweh, by design, had this phrase contain a dual meaning, and it does. The Hebrew word, which means El, which is El, I'm sorry, the Hebrew word El, Strong's number 410 in the Hebrew dictionary, can also mean judge. It appears in this context often in the Psalms, where the King James Version nevertheless translates the word in the plural as gods, and where it may have been more properly translated rulers or judges, it's Psalm 136, verse 2, Psalm 138, verse 1, or in the book of Ruth at 115 or 116, for example, where Ruth says to Naomi, I will leave my judges and move to your land and, and take your judges. Therefore, while David, in the 22nd Psalm, clearly referred to God when he uttered these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is nevertheless plausible that Christ refers not to God, because he is the fleshly embodiment of God, but rather that he instead uses this phrase in reference to those who condemned him who had all gone off to the comfort and business of their own lives as he hung there dying. So while I have translated this passage in the Christogenian New Testament, in the traditional manner, as my God, my God, for what reason have you abandoned me? It may well have been Christ's intention to challenge those who condemned him my judge, my judge, for what reason have you abandoned me? And that's very possible that the, the phrase purposely has that double meaning. It can't be proven, but it makes sense to me. And immediately, one from among them, running and taking both a sponge full of vinegar and placing it upon a reed, gave him to drink. But the rest said, leave him, that we would see whether Elijah comes saving him. So they thought that he was calling Elijah. But another taking a lance pierced his side, and there came out water and blood. Now, we do not see these words in the King James Version, or in the American Standard Version, where it says in the Christogenian New Testament, but another, taking a lance, pierced his side, and there came out water and blood. These words are in the Christogenia New Testament because they appear in the Codex Vaticanus and in the Codex Sinaiticus, which are the two oldest of the great uncial codices. The words also appear in the 5th century Codex Ephraimi Siri, 
which is actually considered to be, and it is, a part of the Alexandrian tradition. Now, the King James is missing these words because the words do not appear in the 5th century Codex Alexandrinus. which is the primary codex representing the Alexandrian tradition. So we see a division there. Neither do the words appear in the, codex, the codices Bezai or Washingtonensis, which both date to the 5th century. The majority text manuscripts representing the Greek that the King James Version employed are very closely related to the codices Alexandrinus and Bezai, and these are not the best manuscripts. Other late ma later manuscripts, including those in Latin or Syriac, are found which follow either group. The words also appear in John 19.34, where they are generally attested to by all of the major manuscripts, and also by one papyri, known as P66, I believe, which is believed to date to circa 200 A.D., these words certainly belong here, being in the two oldest of the great uncials, and those two great uncials, the codices Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, are not known to have followed each other, but rather to have come down independently of each other, and they both date to the 4th century A.D. Again, Psalm 69.21 they gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Verse 50, then Yahshua, again crying out with a great voice, gave up the spirit. The spirit does not die. Rather, the body dies when the spirit departs from it. Verse 51, and behold, the curtain of the temple had torn in two from the top to the bottom. And the earth had been shaken, and the rock split. And the tombs had opened, and many of the bodies of the saints who were sleeping had been raised. And coming out from the tombs after his rising, they entered into the holy city and had appeared to many. Isaiah 26:19 says this, Thy dead men shall live. Together with my dead body they shall arise. Awake and sing, you that dwell in the dust. For your dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Now, whether we believe Isaiah is talking of the time of Christ or of the resurrection to come, the words are in Isaiah, right? There is no record of this resurrection in Matthew. These were, the, the, this passage is highly challenged, right? It's always challenged. There is no record of this resurrection of other people upon the death of Christ elsewhere in the New Testament. Paul only indicates at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who are sleeping. Yet, these things alone do not discredit the words found in Matthew, and they cannot be discredited by the manuscripts because they were attested to by all of the oldest manuscripts. In fact, there's one difference in some manuscripts, which is seen in the tense of the final verb in verse 52, which to me indicates even further that the words do in fact belong to the oldest manuscripts, since that difference is so typical 
of other differences found throughout the manuscripts in other passages, in both the nature of the difference and the manuscripts which contain it. So although it is natural to want to know more about these verses, I am currently persuaded that they are indeed a part of Matthew's original testimony until I have further evidence that they are not. It seems to me that this testimony is true. We don't have enough material to prove otherwise. So while many people doubt the testimony in Matthew chapter 27, verses 51 through 53, and see them as an interpolation, there's no proof that it's an interpolation. And therefore, I believe that we have to accept them at face value until that can be proven. But there is also no other witness to these verses in the New Testament. Matthew 27, verse 54. Then the centurion and those with him guarding Yahshua, seeing the earthquake and the things which happened, feared exceedingly, saying, truly he was a son of God. And this is attested to in Mark also. But Luke records the soldiers having said only that certainly this was a righteous man in Luke 23:47. It could very well be that the, the centurion said both things, or, or two centurions said something similar. It, it doesn't, none of this, when we see something in one gospel that is not in another, that does not prove the other gospel wrong, as I've explained throughout this, this series on Matthew, that only shows that another writer had a different perspective and recorded things differently. Verse 55. And there were many women there observing from afar who had followed with Yahshua from Galilee to serve him. So they were with him for all this time. Among them were Maria the Magdalene, and Maria the mother of Jacob and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee, John and Andrew. These verses are attested to by all of the Gospels. While the Gospel accounts are focused on Christ, and then after that they're focused on the intercourse between Christ and the Twelve Apostles, it is wrong to think that through these many events, that it is only Christ and the twelve apostles who were present. Here, we see that these women were with Christ all the way from Galilee to the time of his death, and certainly at diverse times and at different events, there were others who were also present together with him and with the twelve. So we have to remember that there are always a lot of other people with him and not just Christ and the Twelve. I'm sure the women never left his side until they were forced to. We see the same thing in the Old Testament with the stories of, um, of Abraham and Sarah. We see that Abraham and Sarah went to Egypt and there's not really a mention of anybody else but Abraham and Sarah. But a short time later... Abraham has 300 men who go to war against the kings of Canaan. And, and um, 
Therefore, we could assume that those 300 men also went to Egypt with Abraham, right? Because a man and a woman in those days, when it was probably a lot worse than the Wild West on the caravan trails of, of Mesopotamia, would be surely be a target for robbers and never survive a trip to Egypt alone. Verse, verse 57. And it becoming late, there had come a wealthy man from Arimathea with the name Joseph, who also himself had been instructed by Yahshua. So he, having gone forth to Pilate, requested the body of Yahshua. Then Pilate commanded that it be turned over. We see in the other gospel accounts, which verify this, that Pilate had made sure that the body was dead first, right? Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy man who apparently also had ready, ac ready access to the governor of the province and who also had a right to claim the deceased body of the Christ. While there must have been legitimate reasons for his being in a position to do these things, there are no early documents which can offer explanations. And there are also many later fables which have been devised. It's commonly believed at later times that Joseph was a relative of Christ's. Often it's commonly believed that he was a relative of Christ's through Mary, but I can't find any early, meaning the first centuries of Christianity, I can't find any early documentation of that, right? This Joseph is called an honorable counselor by Mark, and he's called a council member by Luke. So he must have meant that Joseph of Arimathea was one of the members of the Sanhedrin, because Luke also tells us that he was not in agreement with their counsel and action concerning the plot against Christ. Luke also tells us that Joseph awaited the kingdom of Yahweh. In John chapter 19, we learn that Joseph was a student of Yahshua, secretly an account of fear of the Judeans. And that Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, who had come to Yahshua in secret in John chapter 3, Nicodemus also helped Joseph care for the body of Christ and place it in his tomb. Joseph's actions here are often seen as the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 9, where it says, And he made his grave with the wicked, meaning the, the men that he, the robbers that he died with, right? And with the rich in his death, so he was buried in a rich man's tomb. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Verse 59. And taking the body, Joseph wrapped it in a clean, fine linen and set it in his own new tomb, which had been hewn in the bedrock. And rolling a great stone up to the door of the tomb, he departed. And Mariam the Magdalene and the other Maria were there sitting before the burial place. Yet, you know, I saw a, a similar tomb was located 
in um, in Jerusalem some years ago, and I've seen pictures of it in archaeological archaeological magazines, and, and it's basically a deep hole in a wall, a brock. This tomb, and, and there's even speculation that this tomb may have been Joseph of Arimathea's tomb because it so perfectly fit the description, right? And, and a, a large object that was almost like a wheel, a large round stone, was rolled in front of the hole in the rock, which was this tomb. And, and the hole in the rock was definitely cut out. It, it was cut out with tools. It, it was um, a deep and, and wide hole like, a, like an arched doorway. And, and it was really pretty cool to see that, to see those pictures of that tomb and, and to read the gospel account, you know exactly what the gospel account is talking about, right? And, and this large stone is rolled out of the way to give access to this basically what's a man-made cave in, in the side of a, of a cliff of bedrock. Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23 state, And if a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but you shall by any means bury him that day. For he that is hanged is accursed of God. So we see Paul later say of Christ, cursed is he who hangs upon a tree, right? And that thy land not be defiled, which Yahweh thy God has given thee for inheritance. In order to keep all of the various laws in reference to both the Passover and to the care for the dead, like we just read in Deuteronomy, Christ had to be buried quickly. And so he had to be buried nearby rather than being transported to his home in Galilee. It had to be that he was buried before evening, before the sun started to set here on the day of the Passover. Joseph of Arimathea's intervention assured that all of this was done. And as I said, we don't know exactly who Joseph was, but he was wealthy. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. And he had to have some relationship to Christ. Now, there have been statements made in the Middle Ages from the time of Jerome, I believe, which is pretty late. I mean, Jerome translated the Latin Vulgate about from, from Hebrew in Egypt, in Alexandria, about 420 A.D., which is really pretty late. And, and today I researched um, Joseph of Arimathea in, in writings of much earlier Christians, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, and, and I really didn't come up with anything of substance concerning the man. And, and to me, a 5th century testimony is just as much a guess as anything we could make now, right? And, and that's my opinion. Verse 62. I'm sorry. Yes, verse 62. Then in the morning, which is after the preparation day. So the morning after the preparation day would be the Passover of the Judeans, right? The high priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate, where they are hypocritically seen to be 
conducting business on the Passover, which is a high Sabbath, right? Saying, Master, we have remembered that while living, that deceiver, referring to Christ, said, after three days I shall be raised. Therefore, commanded the burial places to be secured until the third day, lest coming his students should steal him and would say to the people, he has been raised from the dead, and the last deception shall be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a sentry, you go secure it so that you know. Then going, they secured the burial place, sealing the stone with the sentry. Of course, they probably went to Pilate because they would want to use Romans for this purpose because it was the Passover feast and Judeans shouldn't work, right? But they themselves were being hypocritical going to Pilate to conduct this business on the Passover in the first place. We only learned that the Judeans had placed the sentry at the tomb of Christ from the Gospel of Matthew. Like the resurrection mentioned above, that does not discredit this account. It is clear that the other Gospel writers found it more important to focus their attention upon other aspects of the burial of Christ and his resurrection. Next week, Yahweh willing, we shall return with Matthew Chapter 28 and the discussion of the resurrection of the Christ and the three days and three nights in the tomb. Thank you for listening tonight. Praise Yahweh. Yahweh willing, I will be here next week with Matthew 28 to conclude this series. Tomorrow, Saturday, Christagenia Saturdays, I will be here with Carolyn Yeager. Carolyn has done a lot of excellent work. I've used some of her articles in my running series with Sword Brethren on Adolf Hitler in World War II. And, and um, she's done a lot of excellent work exposing the hoax of the so-called Holocaust, exposing the fraud, Eli Weasel, and, and, and the lies about Auschwitz and other things. So I, I will have her here for a discussion tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Thank you. Praise Yahweh.